Our Bible reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through to chapter 3, verse 6. Now, when I went to Trias to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much for the invitation, the privilege of being able to open God's Word and greetings to you at St. Martin's or St. Peter's. Uh, this is a short series in the New Testament, which I've called Deep Faith in a Shallow World. And I do thank God for these verses in 2 Corinthians. They have been really a secret of my sanity in ministry over the years. And if you're feeling your weakness or your helplessness, whether it's physically or relationally or spiritually, these verses are really just what you need. Uh, the background to our passage this morning, which you've undoubtedly had read for you, is that the Apostle Paul is being accused of weakness, and he's being accused by a church which he began and a church which he loves. He is, of course, or was, an unimpressive person to look at, and his ministry possibly was not that uh, scintillating. Uh, he says to his critics who are criticizing him, however, you're right and you're wrong. You're right about me, I am a weak person, but you're wrong about God, he is not a weak person. And so the Apostle Paul basically says in this section of the New Testament, I may seem weak to you if you put on your worldly glasses to assess me, but God uses weakness. And the supreme example, of course, we would say is the cross of Christ, which seemed to be a complete disaster, but is the very place where God brings people to salvation so this is a tough issue for the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, which is our letter. Uh, the church has begun to think like the world. Uh, their test for spiritual greatness is quite shallow. Uh, imagine if in your church you decided that um, the only people who could come and be members 
were attractive people or wealthy-looking people or short people or tall people, it would be a very shallow test. And the Apostle Paul spends more time on this issue than any other issue, not because he wants to defend himself so much, but he must defend the truth for the sake of their faith and for the sake of their salvation. We're going to follow this brilliant argument, uh, what is really a detour in the letter for about 85 verses. We're going to follow this over these Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and I trust you'll be helped by this and uh, undoubtedly comforted and challenged as well. Back in the 19th century, there was an evangelist called D.L. Moody, and uh, Moody was a very portly man, and he was a very simple man. He was a very uneducated man, and when he went to England... Uh, he had the great problem of being an American. And when he went to Cambridge, of course, he received a lot of criticism. And somebody said to him, as masses went out to hear him, and thousands became Christians, somebody said to him, Mr. Moody, we see no connection between you and what is happening. And D.L. Moody said, that's exactly how we like it. And that's what the Apostle Paul is on about here. So there are two sections as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. The first I've called God's victory procession, chapter 2, 12 to 17. And then the second point in a minute is God's genuine article, chapter 3, 1 to 6. Chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, When I came to Troas, which was on the coast of Turkey, to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest because I didn't find my brother, but I took my leave. In other words, I left. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, I want you Corinthians to know as I write to you that I was so agitated about you. I was so distracted. I couldn't concentrate at a very moment where the Lord Jesus gave me a window of opportunity. A door had opened for Christian service, but I had no news on you Corinthians and I had no news to reassure me that you were still loyal to me, Paul, and loyal to the truth and loyal to the Savior. And so I couldn't concentrate on the work that had opened, and I left. This is a great insight into the Apostle Paul, because he's obviously very human and very loving. And if you know what it's like to be completely chewed up about something or someone, so you just can't concentrate on what you're reading or hearing. You may be experiencing this right now. You've got an ally in the Apostle Paul. He can't concentrate on ministry while the Corinthians are possibly in danger. Uh, he had founded this church on his third missionary journey. He wrote 1 Corinthians to answer many of their questions uh, some intruders or trespassers or false teachers had come in now who are critical of the Apostle Paul, and they were putting a wedge between him and the people in the church. And so the Apostle Paul had sent Titus to find out how things were, and he was waiting to hear back from Titus, and he was completely eaten up as he waited, and he couldn't do the work. But in chapter 2, verse 14, and if you only remember one thing from the talk this morning, I hope you'll remember this. 
that it is possible for trouble and triumph to be taking place at the same time. In chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, and remember, he's had no news on how the Corinthians are. He's very worried about them. And he says this in verse 14, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul has trouble and he has triumph. And they fit together often in God's purposes. So he knows, as he says, that he is caught up in the triumphal procession of Christ because he's a believer, he's a Christian. And this triumphal procession keeps going despite the troubles of the believers. Uh, He's part of this triumphal procession because Christ has saved him. And so he reminds himself and he reminds the Corinthians that just as the Romans would put on a victory procession after they had had a successful battle and they would have the captives on display, I think probably dragging behind, and there would be lots of colour and pageantry and there would be lots of swinging of incense and the whole thing was a real uh, burst on the senses. The Apostle Paul says that Roman procession is a tiny little picture of the great victory procession of Christ who has been raised from the dead and now all the enemies of Christ are tragic and foolish whereas the friends of Christ share in the triumph or the victory along with him. Now you can't work this out with your eyes. It's impossible to work out the power of God if you're going to look at the believer or the church or the preacher or even the message and you're ticking boxes of a worldly kind, you're only going to work out the procession, the victory procession from the promises of God in the scriptures. And so the eye looks at a whole lot of things to do with Christianity and they look very feeble and they are very feeble. But the non-Christian seems to be very powerful. But when you put on biblical glasses, in fact, you discover that it's those who belong to Christ are in his victory procession forever. And the non-Christian is actually captive, captive to sin, captive to death, captive to judgment. He uses an incense illustration. He says, um, he spreads through us the fragrance of Christ, which for some people is a pleasure and for some people is not. And uh, this is a very powerful and clever illustration because you don't get to see incense. And remember, the Apostle Paul is dealing with people who only are interested in what you can see. But incense can be very powerful. It can be a joy to receive it, or it can be a stench and something that you dislike. And the Apostle Paul basically says, we believers, we apostles, we preachers of Christ, we're having a divisive effect on our listeners. Um, And uh, this causes some to receive the message of Christ and live, and some reject the message of Christ and they stay in their death. So Paul says, what a role to play. What a responsibility. Chapter 2, verse 16, who is up to this? Who's sufficient? All we can do, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, is to go on as faithfully as we can. 
So the point I want to make is that in this victory procession of Christ, it is possible to be in trouble and at the same time to be in triumph. And when you join Jesus by faith, you join his victory procession. That's a fact. It may not be a feeling. You could be in the triumphal procession and experiencing trouble. Yes, you could. We tend to think, don't we, that if we have trouble, we must have missed the triumph. Or if, if we're in the triumphal procession, we won't have trouble. But the Apostle Paul says and shows they both fit together. It was so for the Apostle Paul. Before him, it was true for Jesus. Great trouble, great triumph. And it is for every Christian We're caught up in the triumphal procession of Christ as soon as we put our faith in Jesus, but it's possible that there will be trouble, earthly troubles or spiritual troubles, all sorts of troubles. One uh, preacher of, uh, the again, the 19th century, F.B. Meyer, said this, and I find this a fascinating comment. He said, our Christian life must, to a large extent, be a mystery. The source of our supply must evade the scrutiny of those who stand outside God's circle. Doubt your religion if it all lies on the surface. We must be prepared to be misunderstood and criticized. But we do not look up to the hills. We look beyond to God. We cannot but seem eccentric because we have found another center to the world which is the centre of Christ's throne. I was talking to a school chaplain this week, just a few days ago. He's quite new to the school where he's working, and it's been a strange year for him to be working. And he said an interesting thing. He said, I appreciate your prayers because the ministry is very difficult in the school. The school is quite hostile to the Christian faith. He said, 20 years ago, when I was, he said, a teenager, um, people would say, look, I don't share your Christian beliefs, but I respect your ethics, you know, your love for people and your service. He said, today, the people say to him, I don't share your Christian faith and I despise your ethics that have to do with a whole range of issues, um, sexuality being one of them. And so he said, I'm in a tremendously weak position. But that's exactly what the Paul is talking about here. We are weak. We're personally weak. We're corporately weak. But that is exactly the type of context in which God is pleased to work. And I hope you'll keep preaching to yourself this week as you're driving or as you're walking or as you're sitting alone with a cup of tea or coffee. I hope you'll keep reminding yourself trouble and triumph in the victory procession. There can be both. Now, the second uh, section in our letters today, this evening, is God's genuine article, or we might say God's true servant, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I read this week that somebody wrote to a church which had been making too many changes in its behavior, and the person said in the letter this, I thought it was quite funny and quite sad, They said, look, if Jesus Christ could see what you are doing in your church, he would turn in his grave. Quite an odd thing to say, really, isn't it? And the Apostle Paul had his critics, and many of them were very confused as well. 
And it seems that the intruders or the false apostles or these shallow opponents of the apostle had, chapter 3, verse 1, special letters of recommendation. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we need, as some, letters of commendation? Now, these letters, reading between the lines, seem to have been kind of permissions or um, some kind of recommendation or qualification or endorsement. And uh, these are the sort of letters which it seems the false teachers could have been waving around and saying, here's my great endorsement for ministry. And the Apostle Paul didn't have these. And the Corinthians were quite confused or fooled by the false teachers with their letters. So what's the Apostle Paul going to do? Well, in chapter 3, verse 2, he borrows the word letter. And he says, you Corinthians are our letters. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, you are our letter. And then in verse 3, you are a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on the heart. So the Apostle Paul basically says in answer to these uh, Corinthians who are saying, where are your special um, qualifications? He's basically saying, look, my letters, says Paul, don't come from some human headquarters. They come from Christ. Uh, they're not in ink. They're written by the Spirit of God. And they're not on some kind of stone or paper. They're written on hearts. Now, this is the tricky bit. Stay with me for this next minute if you can. On whose heart is the letter written? And Paul, you see, could have said, you Corinthians are a proof of my successful ministry and my authority because your hearts have been converted. Apostle Paul could have argued like that. He could have said, look, I came into the city of Corinth and there were no believers and I started preaching the gospel and all you people have been converted and so you're the obvious proof of my ministry. But that would play into the hands of the false teachers because they were thinking that the proof of ministry is success, which is a very unhelpful test for ministry. You don't choose a pastor for a church uh, just because there has been some success. It could have been very superficial. You don't support a missionary just because they are successful. You don't put on a Sunday school teacher once they have shown how successful they are. Uh, you don't sack a pastor for lack of worldly success. You don't sack a missionary. You don't sack a Sunday school teacher. You can imagine how difficult it is for some missionaries as they write back from the mission field and have had just hard, hard work with no great results. And they're wanting to write back and say to the church, keep supporting me. I wish I could say things were just going fantastically, but they're so difficult. It seems that what the Apostle Paul is saying is this, you Corinthians are letters, but you're written on my heart. Let me say that again. You Corinthians are my letters, but you're written on my heart. And the proof that you're on my heart is that I came to Corinth and I preached the gospel at no expense. And then I wrote letters to keep you going. 
And I shed tears for you, and I said prayers for you, and I rejoiced in you when you went forward, and I grieved when you went backwards. In other words, real ministry, says the Apostle Paul, is not authenticated by some piece of paper, something outward. It's something inward. Think, for example, of the child who says to the parent, the mother or the father, one day when they're in a particularly bad mood. The child's in a bad mood and says, you don't love me. What does the parent say? Well, I doubt the parent will say, well, just look at all the birthday presents we gave you. Look at all the cards we wrote. No, the parent will have to bear the brunt of that accusation because the parent knows that they have inwardly a great concern for the child, which has shown itself in lots of outward sacrifices. What is the mark of the genuine servant of Christ? It's not the cleverness. It's not the qualifications. It's that they have a heart for God's people. In other words, this is what keeps the parent or the pastor lying awake at night. The person is on their heart. This person who's on their heart is precious to them. Their eternity is at stake. The pastor knows he or she will give account for that particular person. And Christ, you see says to the Corinthians, you're on my heart. And what bursts out of my heart is not self-serving, like we might say the false teachers, but self-giving. It's an interesting question to ask as we come to the end of the isolation of this particular year. And many people have actually enjoyed, loved, appreciated being left alone having little to do, no responsibilities, no contacts, leave me alone. It's interesting to see whether after this there will be a rising up under the influence of God to reconnect and to look after one another and to meet again because the Apostle Paul is talking about a heart for the people of God. Well, in chapter 3, verse 4, he traces this all back to God. He says, we have this trust through Christ. We have this trust through Christ. Just as we trace our salvation back to Christ, we trace our ministry, our service back to Christ. If somebody says to you one day, uh, why do you believe in Jesus Christ as your saviour? And you'll say, well, because, you know, some years ago I heard a talk or I read a book or I went to a meeting or I went to a camp... The person might say, yeah, but why did you respond? Oh, you say, well, because I was being very humble and listening carefully, and I was in a quite needy moment of my life. And the person will say, well, there were many people who were listening, and there were many people who were needy, but they didn't respond. Why did you respond? And in the end, you'll have to trace your salvation back to the mercy of Christ. That's all it is, the mercy of Christ. And we trace our service back to Christ as well. He has given us the privilege of serving him. And he's put a new life into us and he's put a new love into us as well. And he makes us sufficient. Do you remember back in chapter 2 verse 16, the apostle Paul said, who's sufficient? Who can do this? Who's up to this? 
Paul answers the question in chapter 3, verse 6. He makes us sufficient. What a comforting thing this is. As we have to deal with certain people for serving Christ, he makes us sufficient. As we have to do work that is difficult, costly, he makes us sufficient. As we seek to witness and how tragically weak we are, he makes us sufficient. We don't dig deep, as the world says. We look to him. We look outside ourselves, and he makes us sufficient. So let me uh, conclude by saying that when Christ is at work on a person, and I hope this is you, he makes them, first of all, new. He changes their heart by putting his Holy Spirit into their heart, who makes them into a brand new person. The person has put themselves into the hands of Christ who died for them, and Christ puts himself by his Spirit into them. A person puts themselves into his hands, and he puts himself by his Spirit into their heart. He makes them new. He makes them safe. Even if there is trouble, you're still in the victory procession. You don't get kicked out of the victory procession because of failure or doubt or mistakes. We're still in the victory procession. We share in his triumph. And when Christ is working on a person, he not only makes them new and makes them safe, he causes them to serve they suddenly find that they have a new concern for people. Not perfect, but new. They have a concern for the welfare of people, that they be saved. And they have a concern for the welfare of believers, that they go forward. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these wonderful early verses in the section that we're going to look at over these next few Sundays. This week I received a magazine called Open Doors, which is always a challenge and a rebuke to me. And I was especially struck by this photo that you probably can't see, but it's a picture of four pastors in Nigeria sitting in the building which has been completely destroyed by Islamic terrorists. And there are these four pastors sitting in the ashes of their building, reading the word, sending up their prayers, perhaps singing their songs, trusting the Lord, triumph and trouble. Genuine believers, genuine servants. I can't think of a better example to us as we close in prayer of God at work through weakness with his strength. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for these precious verses reminding us that you're a God Pleased to show your strength in our weakness, your wisdom in our foolishness, your mercy in our sinfulness. We thank you that you are greater and better and more triumphant than all the frailties and the failures of your people. We pray that you would lift up our hearts and take us and use us in your service. For Christ's sake. Amen.